0: Welcome to episode number 22 of Just Go Grind, a show that focuses on helping you find a career you love, start a business, and make a bigger impact in your life. I'm Justin Gordon, your host and an MBA student in the class of 2020 at the USC Marshall School of Business. I've had my hand in entrepreneurship and business since 2012 when I launched Just Go Fitness, and now with Just Go Grind. In this episode, we have Lizzie Dastin who is an art history instructor at UCLAX and Santa Monica College. She's also the founder of Art and Seeking, which is a street art information hub, and she has so much information and knowledge on street art. It is incredible. She also co-hosts a podcast called Art Attack. Listen to one of those episodes, one based on LA, and it was incredibly insightful. She's done a lot of different things in her career, a huge focus on street art, and in this episode we cover many many things including how she had to change careers kind of adjust her own career path why she's so attracted to street art and spends her time exploring and finding new street art and also other types of art that she teaches in her classes we talk about the best places in los angeles to find street art and we go through so much more the show notes are at just go grind.com slash podcast you can support the show at patreon.com slash just go grind. And in iTunes, please, 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 leave a rating and review. Just go search "Just Go Grind" or in your app, subscribe, leave a rating and review. I'd appreciate that. Without further ado, here is Lizzie Dastin. Lizzie, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I am a big fan of what you do, and really honored to be a part of it.
0: I appreciate you coming on, and I've listened to an episode or two of your podcast as well, and that, guy, so much depth and so much knowledge you have on art, it's just fascinating because I don't have that. (laughs) So it's very interesting to me. And we're going to dig into all of that, starting with, I want to know if when you were little and growing up, did you always want to be involved with art in some capacity?
1: I did not. I think that I was an incredibly resistant art historian. I come (laughs) from a family of writers And I always thought that I would be a novelist like my mother, like my grandfather before her. And I actually kind of hated art and I really resented travel, which is so annoying to say, but (laughs) I was a little girl and I just did not want to go to museums. And I did it because I was forced and I didn't have a choice. And my mother, who is this consummate and beautiful storyteller, she would walk through the galleries with me weaving each of the paintings into this master narrative of her own design. And that was the first time that I really saw the possibilities of art as being integers for stories. And that is really what got me interested in my path. And also my developed love of travel, because I really believe that you can learn so much about a culture through understanding their art and being open to whatever design and whatever intention May ensue. So I guess, yeah, that dual interest, my love of travel and my love of stories.
0: So, I mean, growing up, when you're younger, did your mind like how often did you go to these different art places, like museums or anything? Like, how often was that when you were younger?
1: Big trips, I guess we would go on once a year, but I'm from Los Angeles and there are a ton of really incredible museums here. And whenever my mom could she would take me to lacma and the getty and the norton simon so i would say it was it was pretty often and my school field trip program was very developed in the arts and unfortunately i don't think that that is the case nowadays because <laughs> the funding art programs are really the first to get the axe but i used to go to all of the la museums with my little field trip bus and the only thing i remember loving and looking so forward to was the McDonald's at the end, but <laughs> <laughs> what you remember as a kid, but something else obviously made its imprint and and that's the imprint that I've been following in my recent years.
0: Yeah, and talk about like recent years. So you are teaching at a couple different places. Like tell me what you're currently involved in, and there's a, lot, a couple different things.
1: Yeah, definitely. So it's kind of like an art historical constellation. <laughs> and I have been teaching at the college level for the last thirteen years. I started right out of grad school, and I started in New York at a a university called Mercy College and then the School of Visual Arts, and in LA, once I got moved back here, I started teaching at the American Jewish University, and now I'm at UCLA Extension and Santa Monica College. So I've been doing that, but I had a terrible and tumultuous experience with my doctoral program And I ended up dropping out when I was ABD. So that means all but dissertation. And I was so far along that I can't transfer those credits to another school. But I can't go back necessarily because I had a really, really toxic and pretty transformatively awful experience. So it puts me in a weird spot now because I can adjunct as long as a school wants to have me but I can't develop my relationship with any school in a way that a tenure track professor would be able to. So that weirdness, that kind of liminality of where I was professionally, it encouraged me to come up with something else, another star in the constellation, because my life couldn't really be sustained with teaching alone. And then I thought, well, what do I love about teaching? I love Communication. I love the exchange of ideas that I get to have with my students. And I love demystifying art because we still have this belief that art is super precious. It's really highbrow and it's only available to a certain echelon of people who have access to education. And I don't believe that's true. And that's what got me interested in street art and graffiti because that stuff is egalitarian, it's everywhere, it's free. Anybody can experience it. Everybody can form some kind of, of relationship with it. And I found that incredibly vivacious of a concept. So I ended up starting by interviewing artists and trying to create some kind of digital archive, something permanent out of something that is by nature ephemeral. And then that translated to a podcast uh, that you mentioned. It's called Art Attack with a very famous and pretty profound contemporary artist, Justin Bua. And so I do that now. And also I'm writing a book.
0: That is incredible. <laughs> so many different <laughs> things stem from that. I, I have to go back though. So that you, obviously you had, a, you had a bad experience. And so you dropped out, uh, you dropped out of there, essentially. Like, What was the process for deciding your next steps? Because I know people like always have different struggles with careers or they're not happy somewhere. It may not be the same experience obviously you had, but like what what did you do to even take that next step in your career?
1: That's such a good question. And it was really professionally speaking the most terrifying time of my life because my dilemma was that all I've ever wanted to do was be a teacher. And I can't progress in that space without this degree But I knew that leaving was the only option that I had for my mental health. And so how do you navigate that? And how do you (laughs) buy groceries? And it was so that's why it was really chaotic and and a huge crossroads that I faced. And how did I get past that? I asked myself very simple micro questions about how I wanted my days to look. So, for instance, what time do I wake up? What kind of outfit do I have to wear in my dream scenario? How long is my commute to work? Is every day the same or is every day diverse and exciting and dynamic? And after I asked myself those questions, I then asked, what do I really love doing? And I figured out I love traveling. I love communicating about art. I love walking around and a couple other things. And then I created this job in my mind. And unfortunately, that job didn't exist. And so I had to build it but I was only able to figure out what to build by asking these smaller questions, kind of like a scaffolding for my dream.
0: Yeah. Did, did someone tell you what to do or did you read a book that mentioned, you know, the questions to ask or the things to think about, or did you kind of just intuitively like, all right, well, here we are. What, what, what should I do now? Like what was that process?
1: It was a little bit intuition and then okay. a little bit, a super LA thing that I'm going to say, but I'm not <laughs> a life coach. Perfect. Perfect. <laughs> And it was really helpful because I was so in my snow globe of despair after this grad school experience that I couldn't see a viable way out. And I needed somebody who wasn't in my head, who had a little bit of perspective to see my life and help me disentangle what I needed. And it's, it's kind of like, I love this metaphor. I read it somewhere that when you are on the ground in the world in a terrible storm, all you can do is feel the freezing rain, feel the wind, be terrified by the storm. But an airplane that's in that exact same spot, just up in the clouds, has no idea that there's weather. And that that concept really helped me because I was so stifled by my own zoomed in condition that I couldn't even see anything beyond it.
0: Yeah. And it seems like even having an Whether it's a life coach or a friend or family member, just having some type of perspective different than yours can be so helpful.
1: Exactly. And I got the tools from my life coach. And then with those tools, I was able to tailor them to me and what I want to do and what my dream job is.
0: Did, did you have someone suggest the coach or like how did you search them out? Because if someone is looking for that type of thing or looking for some help maybe even in their – whether it's career journey or something else, how did you go about finding one? I'm curious. I
1: really believe – and this again is very LA. We're getting into my favorite. Oh, we're
0: going, as going as deep in LA. <laughs> oh,
1: yeah. We're, we're going there. <laughs> I believe in the energy of the universe. However that's manifested, I, I have no idea. But I believe that there's something – And at first, I think you get a whisper. And then if you don't pay attention to that, you get a normal person voice. And then if you don't pay (laughs) attention to that, you get screamed at. And I was basically screamed at in the face. And that's how I knew that I needed to make a shift in my life. And randomly, I saw that this girl who went to college with me was coming into town. And I don't really have a friendship with her. We're friendly, but it's not like I see her every time she's here. And for whatever reason, we got in touch that time. And she had suggested that I get in touch with a life coach. And I was listening to her speak about it. And I thought, I am obviously not going to do this. This is so not <laughs> happening, but I don't want to be rude to my friend. So I'll entertain <laughs> this phone conversation. And I did. And at the end of the conversation, I was sold and I already signed up. And it was the most pivotal moment that I've had so far professionally.
0: Yeah, that that's incredible. And like, if you wouldn't have done that, who knows what path? Maybe your path would have been different, maybe not. But I mean, it just seems very helpful to have someone. And I don't have a life coach, but I feel like some of my good friends can be very good sounding boards for different ideas or different struggles, and it's very helpful.
1: Totally. I'll be your life coach, Justin. All you need is someone who <laughs> listens to you who cares and who has that zoomed out perspective.
0: Exactly. And I, I want to dig into, so you, you make these decisions, like you kind of figured out, okay, these are the aspects I want in my career, which I think is awesome. I think everyone should do that. But kind of like, you know, okay, what aspects do they want? Like the commute you mentioned and everything else. And you didn't have this, that job didn't exist. Take me through what happened next and trying to figure it, figuring out what that next path was.
1: So after I realized what it was that I was interested in outside the confines of the classroom, next for me in my particular case, it was important to figure out who else is in this space and what it is that I'm able to offer that they don't. And specifically with street art and urban art, everybody wants to get involved. It is such a sexy art form, and it's not necessarily academic, or at least that. That's the way that it is perceived by mainstream culture. And so a lot of people, academics and non-academics alike, are somewhat ingratiated in the world. And so I spent a lot of time figuring out what it is that makes me different. And what I came to is that I can bridge the gap between these diametrically oppositional worlds. I went to Christie's to get my master's there. I used to work at the Met, I've worked at the Whitney, and I have a very traditional education and background, and I'm able to operate within those worlds. But also, I am friends with these street artists, and I really understand their methodologies and their intentions. And somebody called me once the Jane Goodall of the street artists, which I think is hilarious. And... (laughs) Slightly inappropriate because they are not apes, but (laughs) you get that sense, or hopefully what I'm trying to say by making that reference is that I am friends with them and have access to them, but am not myself one of them. Right. And that's really the niche that I've, I've carved for myself is that I try in everything that I do, the podcast, the book, lectures, tours, I try to help elevate the practice that I believe so much in. And I see tremendous value, and I think that we are really in this cool, interdisciplinary place where we can appreciate art while also understanding our political and cultural environment, and that art is not in a vacuum. And now more than ever, we are integrating these other forms of intellectual inquiry. And so I want to help people discover that. And right. then on the other hand, I'm also trying to get street art into the mainstream academic place by including lectures in my classes. I teach an extension course at UCLA all on street art. And so that that was really my next step is figuring out what I can offer that other people haven't quite done.
0: Right. Something unique that's not really talked about, kind of a niche in the market almost. That's just it should it should be should be out there, but it's not for whatever reason reasons you mentioned. And with that, I, mean, I know you met. You started like you said. You did different tours around the city and everything. How did you decide to start doing that? You're, uh, you have these skills. You know art in Los Angeles, and you're like, oh, I'm just going to start doing like tours around the city. It's something different. Like, what happened with that?
1: Well, so you actually reminded me of a step I totally missed it by accident. I just went right over that. So initially, before I really articulated the areas of art that I feel happy to work within, meaning a podcast or a writing context or in a classroom, I thought that I would be an elevated tour guide. Okay, and okay. I realized that I hate giving tours. I hate it so much. <laughs> i such like bad experiences. I felt like a dancing monkey. And I made the huge mistake of putting my tours on Groupon on. And let me tell you, that was the worst ever. Never, ever do Groupon. (laughs) Why? Oh, it was terrible because people, and I'm one of these people, people who buy on Groupon, the whole thing is predicated around what kind of deal you can get. And I see my tours as an extension of my classroom. And so the dynamic is a little bit more reciprocal. It isn't a service. Well, I see it as a service that's shared and that it is something, but it's something special and intellectual. And it isn't like going in for a pedicure where you go in, you have an expectation, you just sit passively and then you leave. And perhaps it was just my attitude that was off because I wasn't expecting the types of clients that I got. And it it was just, it was tough. And I think it's because I really see art as an exchange of ideas. And when I talk about it, I want it to be in the right kind of environment. And for me, giving a tour to people who are just in town for the weekend or whatever it may be, that just wasn't the right fit for me. There are tons of people who do that so much better than I do. And so I didn't think that that was how I could be best served.
0: So you started it, you did that, but then you you figured out pretty quickly that it wasn't quite the the path for you, basically.
1: Exactly, and I still will give tours, but it isn't something that I advertise. It's more just word of mouth.
0: Yeah, and another part of what you've you've done through, I think through your website or YouTube, you've done different videos on different art pieces as well. How do you decide which ones? You just like, oh, I'm gonna make a video for this. Even even I guess even starting that, like, you know, you obviously know art around the area, but what makes you make a video about it and want to share. And I want to do that as well.
1: It's really my love of teaching and my passion for that style of communication. I wanted to take that from outside of this rarefied, very isolating space and turn it into something for a broader audience. And the other thing, kind of like street art itself, is that lectures are often ephemeral. And I would love, if possible, to record not only the artists speaking about their work, because I think that that is an invaluable record for people in this generation and in the ones following, but I'd also like to record the critical analysis that that work can generate. And so I think it's important to to. Um, to put these lectures in some kind of video or auditory world.
0: Right. Just so many more people can consume it, can see it, can learn from it, and then it's not just stops at that one thing, that one exactly. event, which is like even, yeah, same with the podcast as well. It, it, it kind of blows my mind. Even at uh, even at school here at USC, some of the things could definitely be shown to more people or used in like a different way, like even some different events could be filmed and, you know, shown to prospective students or people who are interested in topics and gain more interest in the university or whatever. Like, it just seems like there's more that could be done, I guess, in many ways using media uh, to kind of help that. And, and with that, with, with street art and everything else, like how do you think you, art in general, how is like modern technology and social media and everything changing how that's consumed or how people find out about it? I don't know if you've noticed over time.
1: I have a little bit. I think that Instagram and any kind of social media platform, it. well, I have a complicated relationship with digital media because I think (laughs) on the one hand, it is an incredible resource and a tool. But on the other hand, I think it's kind of counterintuitive to the original intention of street art and graffiti. And what I mean by that is that, let's say there's a graffiti tag that's in your neighborhood in Los Feliz and you snap a picture, you put it on your Instagram. Now everybody can see it. People in Brazil, people (laughs) all around the world. But to me, something that makes street art really dynamic and just different from other art is that it almost requires you to explore it by happenstance. Yeah, And if you see something on Instagram then you lose that ability to just round a corner and find it yourself. And I think in that way, street art and graffiti is more, more personally accessible to people because it isn't in a hall for everybody to look at anytime you want to go to the Louvre or go to LACMA. And that's why I think that this archive of Instagram is incredible because it awards access but also it just kind of diminishes that relationship that that people could otherwise have on their own.
0: Right. To that point then, if someone let's just say Los Angeles for instance, like they want to they want to check out some street art, they want to see it. What's the best way to even go about that then?
1: I think that going to the downtown arts district is the most effective point of, of entry into the world because okay. it's such a congested area. There are tons of murals and tags and wheat pastes and stencils. And it's the whole, the whole um, tool belt of street art methodologies. You'll find all of that downtown. In L.A. and probably in most cities, I think the fringe neighborhoods are the ones where you're probably going to find the most amount of art. So with L.A. in mind, that would be downtown, Los Feliz, Silver Lake, and then on the west side, Venice, parts of Santa Monica. And those would be the the neighborhoods that I would start with. But my favorite street to walk down is Abbott Kinney. And I think that Abbott Kinney has, has really beautiful art and also trenchant with regards to its message. But if you want that typical street art experience, go to the Arts District.
0: Okay. But if you... The typical would be the arts district, okay that's that's a spot and you mentioned Venice and the part of santa Monica. are there are there even other ones there maybe even more or less known that maybe don't have as many like art pieces I guess you could call it
1: well, this my answer to this question kind of relates to the definition of what what it takes to be considered street art okay and I see public art as within that conversation because if you just look at the the root street and art than it is art that's on the street. <laughs> Public sculpture. What? I know. So <laughs> well, a a patch of art that I always think people neglect is the Beverly Hills. What's it called? Well, it's in Beverly Hills. It's the Sculpture Garden, but you know that big um, the patch of grass that's running along Santa Monica Boulevard.
0: Okay. Yep. I've probably seen yes. it.
1: Okay. Well, there are a ton of museum quality pieces along that route. There's a sculpture by Aba Kinovich and something by David Smith and my favorite. There are these tulips by Yayoi Kusama. And those works are incredibly sophisticated. And the, the value inherent to them is just, to me, none, or it's just insurpassable. So- I I would go there, but that's not the gritty, dirty street <laughs> art aesthetic. But to me, that's something that is underutilized in the city.
0: Right. So there are, there are m- many different options, I guess. If you're interested in checking something out, it's, I guess the first step is really just be aware and be open and look. <laughs> that would totally. be. And an so we
1: talked about Instagram, and if you don't know where to start, then follow your favorite artist or see where he or she is putting up work. So I think that it can be this invaluable record. It's an archive because the work, who knows what the shelf life is going to be. And many pieces, especially if they're self-sanctioned, they won't last but a few hours. And so Instagram provides a means for people to see what other otherwise they might not be able to, but right. in so doing, it kind of takes away that special experience of finding something on your own. And my my uh, use of Instagram is interesting because whenever I see a work, it always looks so much bigger than it does in real life. And so I think there's a weird dynamic of scale that is a particular issue for street art. So I'm always like, oh, it's so small. <laughs> <laughs> what does that even mean? Something small can still be incredibly powerful, but right. I notice my own, the my own particular way of consuming these images—they are often filled with disappointment. <laughs>
0: <laughs> uh, that's, that's too bad. Then you're looking around. Yeah, I guess if you see it on your phone, you think it's like a whole wall, and you realize it's like two feet by two feet, or like even a foot, like a small, like little little thing. And it's like, oh god, that changed everything. Oh, yeah, I don't know why. True. I don't know why though. It doesn't make sense.
1: I know it doesn't. It doesn't <laughs> me either, but we have so many fancy ways of documenting things with what are those things called? With drones. And yeah, it's yeah. just so wild and it's so sexy. And then you take that perfect image and you filter it and then you see it in real life and there's trash on the ground and someone peed on it. And it just mm. is.
0: Different. <laughs> right. The real life version is, is much different. Yeah, it is. And to that point, like as you've gotten to, I guess, no more street artists. Um, I, you you've met, uh, I, I imagine a fair amount. I could be wrong though.
1: I the, have. Uh, yes. Yeah. Like I,
0: I'm, I'm wondering, just, Oh. I'm just gonna say, I'm wondering, like, they're not getting paid to do street art. So, what what are they doing? How do they how do they continue to to move on and create new art and support themselves? Like, I don't even know. I'm just really curious that that just came to mind.
1: Yeah, that's a great question. How do street artists monetize? Yeah, that's something that they ask me all the time. I have no idea. But you're right that when a work is done on the street illegally it was not commissioned. It wasn't paid for. They're doing it out of their own unique desire to communicate whatever message they have. However, all art on the street, just because something is on the street doesn't mean that it was free. And if there's a mural or something very large scale or commissioned by an artist who's already within the lexicon of this world, then chances are they were paid. Okay. So... One way would be to collaborate with corporations and this corporation could be a big one like American Express. American Express is a very a very good organization to contact because they are amenable to the street art aesthetic and they really like it and they don't offer too many limitations or requirements for branding. So that's good because yeah. there was a mural law that was passed a few years ago. That says that if something has obvious branding, then it's an advertisement and not art. And so therefore shouldn't be up in the world or shouldn't be classified within that that same rubric. So American Express is just one example. But I think if artists contact corporations like that, then that's one way to monetize. And another is to parlay the aesthetic that they're doing on the street onto canvas and then selling that work in a gallery.
0: Uh, I didn't think of it like that. Yeah, I yeah. guess it's the same type of... They have the skills, obviously, to do that, so clearly that makes sense. But
1: Exactly, they do. And then another one, they could release a limited edition print run. I have a, thre- a friend, Thrashbird, who will take actual bricks and he'll stencil his signature clone onto the brick and then sell them. And that has more of a street edginess to it than a work that's stenciled on a canvas. So there are lots of different ways, but you are totally right that if you see something that's illegally wheat pasted, then chances are it was done just for the messaging.
0: Yeah. And I want to get into the teaching part of So you know, you wanted to do teaching. What is it about teaching that you enjoy so much?
1: Oh, how long do we have? Oh,
0: teaching, it's
1: up to you. <laughs> the only thing I don't love about teaching is the grading, but We've touched upon some of the areas that really resonate with me already, but I think first and foremost, it's learning from students and it's seeing that point of connection that they make for themselves with the material and applying that to their own lives and their own set of passions. I constantly have students who are not art history majors, and it's always such a fun challenge for me to try to help them See this material as relevant. And we do have this misconception that the humanities are not particularly useful, but I think the basic way of breaking down art, which would be incorporating visual analysis, seeing something and using whatever is in front of you to reveal something larger about the world, that to me is a basic fundamental tool for understanding your surroundings. And I think that it's applicable or can be applicable to every field that you could possibly go into. And so in my perspective, or from my perspective, if you can unpack and understand art, then you can better understand the world. And being a part of that experience and that exchange is my favorite element of teaching. And I love the lecturing. I see it as a tremendous privilege to get to stand in front of students and discuss things that matter to me. And I know that that's a little bit egotistical, but teaching is definitely in part an ego experience, it is. Yes,
0: (laughs) being honest, yes.
1: Yeah, and do I hate that? No, of course not. (laughs) I love talking about my ideas and I love getting to share my agendas. And one of those agendas, I'm a, a feminist and I went to a women's college And that is an important lens through which I see much of the world. And often that perspective is ignored from traditional art histories. So I try to revise the most significant textbooks by introducing often ignored female voices and along those lines, often ignored voices of artists of color and just to try to nuance the story, because for me, it's all about the story. Everything successful is just the way in which you can create a narrative.
0: Yeah. And with your class and structuring your class and art history. So what, what time periods, I guess, are you going from, or how do you even structure the class?
1: I have done so many time periods. The, uh, the worst that I ever did was my first time teaching and it was a three and a half hour class Ooh. spanning from art from ancient Egypt to postmodernism. So basically all art everywhere in the Western world. Everything,
0: yes, everything. <laughs> it was
1: everything. <laughs> but my um my specialties are post-war from the United States. So anything 1945 onwards. I love modern art. I love the history of photography. Contemporary art is wonderful. I've taught a class on feminist art. Street art, urban art, and yeah, so those would be my jams. And <laughs> at SMC, I do an American art history course, and that is from colonialism to the postmodern era.
0: And and with these different time periods, and with these classes. I guess you said it's a, it's a challenge sometimes working with students and trying to be engaging and everything. Like what are some of the things that are helpful for you in making I guess class more engaging or getting the message more so across to people? Um, yeah. Teaching can be very challenging. i've done I've done coaching in terms of fitness uh, early in my career, and there's always challenges in you know making someone actually continue a fitness routine or something, but it's a different type of teaching in a classroom, but how do you overcome those challenges?
1: Well, first of all, there are many challenges, especially I can't even imagine in a training area because people see that as such a a burden yes. on their days and really it's it's an opportunity so uh, but you can't shift their perspectives they have to come up with that on their own and so a couple of ways to to answer that I think first and foremost it's enthusiasm yeah. and I sincerely with every cell that I have, I love art. I think that art is phenomenally valuable. I think that through it, you can learn about yourself, you can learn about the past, you can learn about the present, and maybe even anticipate the future. I think through art, you can sensitively understand cultures that aren't naturally your own. And I think through art, we can really find human points of connection. So to me, there is nothing that an understanding or an appreciation of art can't accomplish. And I think that enthusiasm, hopefully it reads in my lectures and people are naturally just going to be more interested in something when they see somebody delivering that content with sincerity. Right. So I hope that that's what it is, but there are some challenges. So an example of that would be In my American art history class, we have to start from colonialism. You can't work backwards from the fun stuff. And (laughs) when you have never studied art before, starting with colonial American portraiture is a big challenge. And I recognize that. It's been a challenge for me to get on board teaching it. And the way that I try to make it relevant is by comparing it to graffiti and That may seem like a stretch, and perhaps it is. (laughs) But the way that I do that is through the psychology of what inspired the colonial patrons and what continues to inspire graffiti writers. And they're really the same. The people who uh, were early colonialists, for instance, they had no means of photography, so they couldn't just hire someone to take a photo of them in their new land The only way that they could authenticate their presence was by commissioning an artist to paint their likeness. And so for them, it was really proof of life that they were a part of something special, that they mattered, that they had an identity. So it really is about that, about asserting a sense of self. And if you think about the rudimentary reasons that motivates graffiti writers, it's similar and graffiti writers will often tag with their name. And so what is a name but an identity, an authentication of self, a way to prove that you were at that space at that particular time, that you climbed up a precarious billboard and scrawled your name, that you went all city, that you went, that you put your body physically in harm's way. And so I do think that even though hundreds of years have gone by and so many things have changed, that the essential element of human psychology is relatable.
0: Yeah. And to that point, how are you sharing? So on the podcast that you co-host, like, how do you decide what, what you're chatting about there and what, what stories you want to share and what things about art you, you want to talk about?
1: Often, I railroad my co-host into discussing people and themes that interest me.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well done.
1: (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) But we will just talk about it the morning that we meet. Today, he really wanted to discuss Keith Haring, and I wanted to talk about Yayoi Kusama. So that's really how we do it. We just... We synthesize the news and something that is particularly topical if that comes up, like Banksy's performance at Sotheby's, where as soon as his work was sold for almost $1.4 million, canvas it self-destructed itself based on or using this little shredder that he built into the frame years ago. And so when something comes up like that, then we'll talk about it because it's in the news, but... I think our best episodes are the ones that just come from our inherent interest in the material.
0: Yeah, Tell, wait, but hold on, I'm gonna go back to the thing you just mentioned. What is yeah. all that? I did not hear about that. Explain what <laughs> the oh shredder God. and everything. Like, you gotta go a little bit more in depth with that. <laughs> no you can problem. just gloss by that and like, oh, by the way, this happened. Wait, what?
1: <laughs> yeah, this incredible Banksy thing. You don't keep up with all of his stuff. Oh, no,
0: yeah, it's so much to keep up with. You know. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, Banksy is a consummate performer, and throughout his career, he's done these remarkable performances that just highlight systemic fractures in the art world, and this past one that he did at Sotheby's, to me, is such a a vibrant commentary on how we commodify art and how we assign these unregulated fees or price tags to them. And it really asked viewers to address value. What is it? Where is it? How do we enhance it? When is it destroyed? So the way that he did that was that years and years ago, he sprayed one of his signature little girls who's looking upwards trying to catch this balloon that's shaped as a heart. And he sprayed that on a canvas and then I suppose built a frame. And then in that frame, he built an internal shredder. And okay. then I don't know what the provenance for this work was, where it went, presumably to a private collector. But then years later, it found its way at auction. Okay. It was at Sotheby's just a few weeks ago. And the I don't know if you've ever been to an auction, but sometimes they have the the big pièce de résistance pieces on view <laughs> at the gallery. So if was there, they can see it. But they don't have everything on view, but they had this one. And you see it, and then you see the the guy. Oh, what's his name? The person who facilitates the an auctioneer. Auctioneer, Let's, yeah, yeah, that's it. With the actual name of the the word in it. So I'm embarrassed that I couldn't find it. <laughs> so you see the auctioneer. He's he hits his little gavel as soon as it sold for 1.4 million. And then the second that happened, the canvas seemingly on its own, but I guess Banksy or one of his contemporary or one of his Um, people who work for him just pressed a button. And then all of a sudden the canvas starts shredding through the frame.
0: Oh my God.
1: It was amazing. There's a video that he posted on his Instagram. Well worth watching. And you see people shocked. And then they, the people from Sotheby's, they grab the work off the walls. And I don't believe that it was, that it's possible for Sotheby's to not have been in on it. But ultimately I don't think that matters. It's, it's not for them. It's for the world at large. And it, it still presents all of these questions that are enriching to consider, regardless of whether Sotheby's was in on the the prank.
0: Wow, that, that is nuts. (laughs) Oh, my (laughs) gosh. And, And something you mentioned earlier, which I have to bring up as well, you mentioned something about travel. Have you done a lot of traveling and seen art all around the world?
1: I have I haven't really gotten out of the western world as as frequently as I would like to but recently I got to I got to go to Malaysia okay. and Penang is this jewel of a street art city and I saw some of the most incredible work I've ever discovered there and some of the work incorporated found objects as integral elements of the design And Penang is really known as this street art place. And how exciting was that to discover? That was really a wonderful treat for me. So I have done travel mostly throughout Europe, trying to sleuth some street art. But my next adventure would be to, to go to other places.
0: Do you have any places in mind? Just curious.
1: I'm dying to go to Rio and uh Sao Paulo those those are places that really have wonderful and historical street art identities and i'd love to go to africa and see what kind of street art i might be able to find and uncover in south africa or joburg
0: so many different places and i imagine yeah much different in different areas and everyone excited everyone it's a story and they're expressing that so it's going to be varied depending on where you are but so many places to explore even within los angeles are you still like constantly finding new new street art or how are you approaching that
1: every single day yes there is no routine shelf life for any work something can be extant for five years some things could be five minutes and whenever I walk to one of my haunts my tried and true street art places I'm always rediscovering things or mourning things that have been buffed or whitewashed and it is a dynamic living organism and that is the best part it's so fun to get to see a wall and to remember what used to be on that wall And it's almost like a trace, a ghostly whisper of what came before. And you don't get that in a museum. Of course, there are traveling exhibitions, but for all intents and purposes, LACMA's permanent collection is LACMA's permanent collection. And there is no permanent collection on the streets.
0: Yeah, it's always changing, which would make it so interesting to just keep exploring and seeing what's out there and seeing what people are presenting and how it evolves even over time as well.
1: Yeah. And I think that it was smart of you to say that even within LA, there is still a range of street art based on which neighborhoods you find yourself in. And that's totally true. If you go downtown, the work is a little bit more political. The subject matter is a little weightier. And then if you were to go on Abbot Kinney, for instance, the work is more environmental and about the landscape and the atmosphere of LA but the intention of the work doesn't seem to be as steeped in something that that has this sort of political weight.
0: Right. You can explore. Yeah. Even within your own city, there's always more to explore. And I was like, I forgot what the book was. I'll have to maybe link it in the show notes. But um, it, it mentioned like walking through your city with different lenses and diff- thinking of from a different perspectives. And you can be forever curious. There's so much to explore. You can see so many things that even within a small area that you may not notice and constantly makes it interesting just to explore your city and find different things. And like the joy of finding different things out is, is incredible.
1: Oh, yes. And that word that you just used, joy, that is exactly the point. I think that street art helps us feel like every day, every day, mundane activity is like being a part of an epic scavenger hunt right. and being in this world has made me love life and love traveling and enjoy myself more than anything else that I've done. Yeah, It really has activated something for me and the best feedback that I could ever get from someone who's been on a tour or a friend of mine who's forced to listen to me talk about this all the time is when they say, I've passed this wall or this patch of concrete 5,000 times and never seen this work and now I can't I can't help but see it everywhere (laughs) rediscovering
0: things every day
1: yeah exactly you are turning on your eyes in a new way and you're seeing the creative possibilities of the world
0: love it what uh, in terms of as we kind of wrap up here what what else do you like anything else you want to leave people with in terms of art and street art and anything, anything at all?
1: I guess it would just be to exist comfortably with things posing questions, as opposed to having the expectation that art is going to provide an answer. And that would be my best takeaway or the hope that I would have for anybody who wants to be a consumer of art, because I get it. Contemporary stuff can be difficult to digest, especially if you're doing it on your own, outside of it, of any kind of academic environment. And I would just hope that people could remain open. And if you see something that you hate, ask yourself, why do I hate this? <laughs> what about this work is making me feel uncomfortable? Because the most important and the most impactful trenchant contemporary art is really like a Rorschach test. And it is more of a mirror than anything else. And whenever I come across art that I don't like, I ask myself those same questions. Why don't I like it? What is this triggering for me? And you don't have to like it by the end of those questions, but just understand yourself and how you operate in the world and how there can be some kind of cool vibration when you encounter art that requires you to pause. Right.
0: Where can people go to learn more about the things you're doing with the podcast and everything or any specific specific episodes of the podcast you suggest or learning about art in general, where should people go?
1: Ah, that's wonderful. Podcasters unite. I appreciate that. (laughs) Of course. The show is called art attack with Lizzie Dastin and Justin Bua and it's on iTunes and Stitcher and all of the usual suspects for podcasts. I think, Think my favorite episodes. Oh man, any of the historical ones and anything about photography. So we did one on Gary Winogrand. I really like that. Oh, I love one. It's called "That's So LA," and that's about LA as an epicenter for the contemporary street art world. I think that one is really is really good. But anything, I would just. Encourage people to go through the titles and see what jumps out at you, what seems cool and what seems interesting, what you want to learn more about, what you think you already know, and just pick based based on your own reaction to the titles. Oh, we did one that was fun. Uh, speaking of titles, it's called The Legendary Ninja Turtles. <laughs> and that one was about the High Renaissance Masters. So I, I enjoyed that because I thought the title was fun. And we also have a website, artattackpodcast.com. And I have a website that I update with artist interviews, and that is artandseeking.com. And I don't know, email me. <laughs> but, <laughs> and that's the best way to contact someone.
0: Awesome. What's your email address?
1: Oh, um, how dare you ask? No, uh, my email You is, told them to do it. I <laughs> know. It's Lizzy, L I Z Y, at artandseeking.com.
0: Awesome. Lizzie, thank you so much for the time. I will vouch for the That's So LA episode. That was, I think, the one I listened to, I want to say. And it is is fascinating to hear. I had to Google so many things after hearing that episode. (laughs) I was like, wait, what is that? And what is that? And what is that? But it is fascinating. (laughs) But thank you so much for the time today. I'm glad we could have you on.
1: Oh, me too. Thank you for having me.
0: Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Just Go Grind. As always, the show notes are over at JustGoGrind.com slash podcast. And you can support the show over at Patreon.com slash JustGoGrind. And please, please leave a rating and review over on iTunes. It does help more people find the show. Hope you enjoyed this episode. Have a great day.